Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. And my guests today are a husband and wife team that I'm really excited about talking to. They're taking Massachusetts cannabis drink industry by storm. He was a victim of drug wars, arrested at the age of 14, charged and sentenced as an adult. She's an experienced educator and businesswoman with a master's degree in educational leadership. She recently authored an investigative examination of the structural conscious and subconscious biases found in the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission Equity Program. They are the founders of Shakti Greenlit, Mar Stringer, and Cynthia Mompoint. Welcome to Let's Be Blunt. Thank and, you for having me. It, give me exactly how you want your first name pronounced. <clears throat> well, it's Moore. My, my, my father is, is Southern, so he, he pronounces it Mar. But my name is my full name is Maurice. So it just depends on how you pronounce Maurice. Maurice and, or Maurice. And how what do you want to go by? I'll go with just your more, just more. More. Okay. Good to go. Wait, well, hey, and I want to talk to both of you. Is that, where were you born and raised? Where are you from? Originally from Freeport, New York, Long Island. Um, that's where I first got my first charge. I was um arrested as, as a minor, 14 years old, charged with sale to a minor. I was a minor myself, also attempted robbery. I ended up taking the attempted robbery charge um, and they dropped the sale to a minor charge, which was an adult felony. Gotcha. And then let's back up for a second. So when, dude, 14, so when were you first, you know, introduced to cannabis? 13 years old, 1993, man. You know, I talk about a lot of that, um, you know, just studying the, the, the school of prison pipeline uh, by the third grade, they can, they can see whether you're going to go to jail or not. Um, whether you can read or not. And I was a part of that stressful environment. Um, you know, when I graduated high school, I was still sounding out words in books. Mm. But I mean, you you got introduced to cannabis. How? Age 13? Just smelling it, just having it around. It was always around the neighborhood. And the, the older kids used to smoke behind my house, behind Poppy's house, my uh, my grandfather's house. Uh -huh. And then one day you went out there and decided, what are they smoking? I smelt it. I courted it. It, you know, it stimulated my nose. It felt like the right thing to do. And I just entered into the cipher, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I grabbed the blunt and twisted my first blunt at uh, 13 years old. Wow. Okay. And how about you, Cynthia? When were you first? And where were you from? And where were you first introduced to cannabis? Hey, so I'm from Boston, Massachusetts, and grew up in the South Shore area of Boston. I was first introduced to cannabis uh, probably in college, but I, I think I had my first experience around the age of like 2022, 20, and that was it. Um, in terms of really understanding and recognizing cannabis, it's been throughout my relationship with Moore and uh, most recently being converted to the power of cannabis through my, uh, my last two pregnancies. Mm -hmm. We actually had home births, and the only um, medicine that was used was cannabis to assist in the labor. Wow. Okay. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. So, Mara, let's go back for a second. Let's talk about now 13. You get introduced to it. You obviously gravitated to it at an earlier age. But then what got you into selling? Um, so my first charge uh, was sale to a minor. Um, but in 2008, um, you know, it was just a, just a side hustle, something I wanted mm -hmm. to start doing. I was uh, I was like, I wanted to see if I can grow. So I started gorilla growing from seed to sale and getting into the uh, quote-unquote black market. Wow. And were you just selling in the neighborhood? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I was able to get clientele. It sells itself. You know, cannabis sells itself. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, I just started uh, taking trips to California, Colorado, different places. At age 13 and 14? No, no, no. This was uh, no. 28. This was at age oh. 28. No, let's back up. Let's go. I want to go way back to 14. So, I mean, did, did you end up having to serve time? No, no. I've never had to serve any time. Um, I've just had some, some crazy charges. Um, I had three legacy arrest charges in New York City which were um, felony possession charges uh, as, as, an, as a minor, along with a, a couple other charges. And so they just built a record on you, but they didn't put you in. No, no, no. I escaped. I evaded that aspect. When I got into my adult uh, career selling cannabis, um, I had to sail to an undercover cop in Massachusetts um, in 2015. And then I had $60,000 worth of concentrates coming through Ohio. I quit a charge over there. Wow. And did you spend time in prison for that? Or no, 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 no. That's 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 been my privilege. I believe, you know, like I said, um, when you study the school to prison pipeline, it was children who couldn't read. And that was me. I was it was like I was reading about myself and my own dysfunction at the time when I was reading that, that study on that. Um, but I out of all of the charges I had, I had about eight open cases in, in my juvenile record. And then I caught some adult charges, um, some serious charges. And um, I never had to do any time. Wow. And how is that? I mean, the, just just looking back on that, thinking about it, clearly you're now part of the, you know, the the program which allows for is your record expunged? No, 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 no. It's still everything is still available. Um, my juvenile record, you have to go to the specific court and district, but um, everything is still available. And clearly it didn't stop you from pursuing cannabis as a career. No, no, definitely. It was an avenue. I was been a pothead. It's something, something part of my, you know, part of my lifestyle, always selling it and consuming it. And then, and then Cynthia, now the two of you obviously met, became a couple. You clearly were using a little bit of cannabis because of more, right? Not because of more, but you. Well, honestly, to be honest, so we've been together 19 years and his consumption, I usually, I, I turn my nose up for the longest time, like, oh, I can't stand that, you know, and I really couldn't get the mechanics of it down. I, you know, I'm a product of the D.A.R.E. program, say no to drugs. So, and my parents are um, Haitian immigrants. And so, you know, I just stayed away really. And even the time that I tried in college, I couldn't get high. I couldn't figure out how to inhale and catch the, catch the high. However, you know, just as time, just being around it after, I don't know how many years we were around it, 14, 15 years. And then we started, he start, uh, more started creating products with it or um, pressing rosin. And, and uh, one of the doulas that we had for my second to last home birth, she was the one that introduced me to the topical use of cannabis. And she said, hey, listen, when you have contractions, um, and at the time I had never had contractions despite having two other children uh, before I had never had contractions. So she said, listen, when you experience that contraction, you're going to need this. And it was a mixture that she had put together with cannabis based. And um, she was absolutely right. Because when I, when that first contraction hit, I was not prepared. And I told my children, like, where's that special oil? Someone go find that oil. I need it now. I'm literally like groveling on the floor. Mm -hmm. And more came and he ended up massaging my body with it. And I was able to just use the mental work that they teach us with in terms of um, breathing through the labor 
and the transition of the child coming into coming into the world. And that was pretty amazing. And so then uh, we pandemic, we had a, a, a another pregnancy <laughs> and we said, you know what, we're going to do it with our family. And that's what we did. And we knew we would be able to use that to help um, help mitigate some of the pain and, and allow it to be something that was really beautiful and amazing. Wow. And then now that, that point in time, though, you're only using topical. Have you transitioned into consuming? I, we perhaps, oh, you know, more does sometimes when he has host dinners, he'll make certain dishes and he'll infuse it in that. And it is amazing. I, um, I just, I don't have the high tolerance, you know, recreationally, you know, in Massachusetts, we have five milligrams is what's available on the adult use side. And so that is enough for me to feel the, feel the euphoria and, and be content. Gotcha. Well, tell us about how you guys came up with the idea of the Shakti Green Lit. Uh, it's a part of my journey. First, the Shakti, the Hinduism, the Buddhism is a part of my journey, um, dealing with all the violence and everything that I was a part of. Um, just coming home from that war um, is being identified as the war on drugs, but it was a real war, real traumatic issues um, and situations we had to go through. So me personally, just becoming a better person um, with the Buddhism, yoga, the, the, the Reiki, um, so the feminine energy. Uh, so there's been a part of that. Um, so the energy drink is me also being an athlete, lifetime athlete. Since I was 12, I've been wrestling uh, collegiate style, Olympic style, Greco-Roman style wrestling, um, Muay Thai, Taekwondo for the last 15 years. So it's a part of my thing. I, I, um, I'm 42 years old. Um, I want to bring that type of thing to uh, the cannabis industry, that type of uh, supplement type style type of thing um, under the Shakti, bringing wellness and wholeness to life. So you developed this this product line more for not I want to say medicinal, but more for holistic help. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you you set about starting off with you know I'm, I happen to be in the marketplace there in Massachusetts also um, with my own uh, vape line, which is inspired by Montel. You decided to go after the Drake market. Why? Well, it's it's actually a little bit different than the drink market. I actually, uh, it's a thing called the blue ocean idea. I wanted to do something that wasn't around, you know, um, it's a shot, a single shot, one ounce shot. Um, and, and you don't see that. It's actually the first uh, energy shot on the East Coast. Um, so that's one of the things that I just, I wanted to go after something I didn't have competition with. You know, some other drinks were coming out and we are going to do some drinks. But um, for my first thing, I really wanted to knock it out the park. And we're doing some pretty decent numbers um, the first six weeks out. Excellent. 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 I also had a drink line out on the West Coast for a while. We'll probably introduce ones also. So we're, we won't be competitors. We'll just be, you know, able to, to to push each other forward. Yeah. Yeah. And we actually got some ideas, man. My um, So my product, one of my product developers, my wrestling buddy, over 20 plus years, he's been developing products in the supplement industry. So um, we want to bring that to people, man. These, these ideas we have, I, lo- I would love to work with you, Montel. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm working right now with uh, the Freshly Baked guys. I know you know them, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, they've been our, our contract manufacturers, and we've been working with them exclusively for in, in Massachusetts. Uh, we just, I think, I'm going to probably be back up there, oh, in a couple of weeks. Again, I do a lot of pop-ins. The pop-ups at dispensaries, everyone is carrying me um, right now. I kind of draw to get in there and visit them and, and spend some time with the consumers to see if we can 
give them a little bit more knowledge than just walking in and trying to grab some product from underneath the counter. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. We need to we need to check in uh, when you when you uh, when you touch down. I know we've been around Massachusetts. I've been hearing everything. I've been in the industry here, so yeah. yeah. I've been up for about the last four and a half months, five months. We've been coming up once a month. And, and um, you know, again, I, I try to get into as many dispensaries as I possibly can that are carrying a product because, you know, I think um, my approach is a little bit different than others' approach. And it seems to be pretty much the same as what you guys are doing. You know, I approach this from, you know, a whole plant standpoint, but also, you know, I believe very strongly in the power of all the cannabinoids, not just the two big ones everybody talks about, but a lot of the minor ones and a lot of the terpenes. So I have a very specifically formulated product that combines both CBD, THC, and proprietary terpenes that I've mixed together, along with all 100% hemp-based, they're all 100% hemp-based terpenes in the same vape cart. You know, and like right now, you know, when you're you're trying to navigate that vape world, I mean, you know, you have no idea what some of these people are putting in some of their Claim to be putting in botanical terpenes. What the hell is that? You know what I mean? I mean, why would, would I smoke a grape? No. So why would I want you to put grape terpenes in my vape pen or any other botanical terpene in my vape pen? I would rather be able to consume hemp or cannabis, and that's what I do. So I'm glad. We'll have to, we definitely have to hook up when I'm up there next time. Yeah, yeah, I would love that, man. Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit, Cynthia, about, you know, first off, you guys are, are social equity license holders, correct? We are social equity um, participants and certificate holders and economic empowerment certificate holders. So Massachusetts has two equity classifications and we uh, fit the criteria and have secured that status, both of those status. Can, can you can you just write right now, just for our viewers so they understand you know, the process, because I know it was probably long and arduous, but tell me a little bit about what you had to do to qualify. I know that you know, more probably you helped qualify because of your previous arrest, correct? Or charges. Okay, so explain the whole process about the equity one and then the other one that we were talking about. Correct. So in Massachusetts, there are two programs. One is the economic empowerment program that was available for a two-week window in 2018. Very exclusive um, time period and opportunity. And the target were, there were six criteria that folks had to um, could potentially meet. They had to meet at least three of those criteria. And basically the goal was to demonstrate that you had either a, uh, not only a connection to communities that have been disproportionately impacted, but also uh, show, demonstrate the ability to demonstrate that you have empowered those communities either through direct work or your involvement in um, empowering them. And so for us, our family, we empower through education, through home ownership. Uh, we have a real estate brokerage as well. And so we work a lot with first time home buyers, educating them on the process, showing them how they can actually achieve this first step in uh, building generational wealth. So it, just, it makes a lot of sense that we uh, fit the regulated uh, regulations and the legislation when it came to economic empowerment. How that played out, a little different story, but that was for the economic empowerment piece. And so then fast forward in 2019, the state also through regulation, which is the economic empowerment was in legislation. So there was that's on the books by, by law. And then in 2019, the CCC, the Cannabis Control Commission, has had the authority to create programs to um, per, 
promote equitable participation in the industry. And one of the programs they created was the social equity program where, and that's continuously ran every year, the window opens up where an applicant who has a prior conviction or um, arrest, cannabis related arrest can qualify. There are other um, metrics that need to be met. I think that for the social equity program, there are three, you have to either have lived in an area that was disproportionately deemed disproportionately impacted or have that um, previous charge or be part of uh, um, a minority group that has been targeted. So, which is the black, brown, Latino community. And when you, I mean, looking at it, how do you think the Massachusetts programs or the equity programs are going? Um, um, Going, going, uh, they went, I mean, there's, that's a big, that's another show in of itself. We actually did a lot of advocacy um, on the ground for the first two years. My wife wrote a program called the Pies Program to actually um, effectuate equity within these programs. Um, the, the Cannabis Advisory Board presented it to the CCC in 2020 as, as a solution. So New York is actually looking at the Pies Program right now. Um, Cynthia is a part of, Cynthia and myself, we're part of a webinar on the 29th of of, um, of of November, so yeah, we'll be doing that. Um, just promoting that program to help effectuate equity and um, pairing incubator excel seed. So Got yeah, it. yeah. But um, it, it, I mean, do you think? I mean, uh, and a lot of states claim to have these programs as part of their administrative process, but as we continue to look at this industry across the board across the country. You know, black and brown people still only represent, I think it's like less than 6% of the people who are part of, you know, the 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 money-making end of this. And women are probably, you know, less than 5%. So now, you know, we're looking at, what, 11% of the industry that's that's going to normally be considered, you know, a, a, a smaller minority group. Um, do you really believe that there's a sense of trying to you know, include everyone, or do you think that this is just bullshit? Excuse my mouth. Yeah, I mean, the fact that we're not starting at the root of the problem. You know, the fact that we this was called a war on drugs, um, and we're not we're not attacking this with, uh, you know, uh, like we're like the war crimes and, and um, things that happen um, within this war. So yeah, it's a deeper problem um, and a deeper issue. Well, the, I mean, the part of the deepest issue is the fact that even here right now today, where we have 38, I think, I guess, those two more states just added, well, they're still part of the larger number. So we had two states, three states pass out of the five that had some sort of ballot initiative. Three of them passed. I think that increased us from 38 states to now 39 states plus the District of Columbia that have some form of of medical or medical or, or adult use cannabis program going on. But, um, you know, at the same, uh, uh, the numbers have not really been, though, depends on who you look at. In some ways, it looks as if there are less people being put in prison, but there really aren't. We, yeah, we're still being disproportionately arrested. No, and I, I think in, in, in Colorado and in a lot of other states is showing that legalization hasn't helped the black and brown community. Um, At we, all. We're still being targeted. I mean, well, because we understand that, you know, and I, I think that, you know, goes without being said, but I, I have been talking about this for years now, the fact that, you know, if you go all the way back to 1937, when it was Maine vilified as part of the, you know, Marijuana Tax Act, 
this was really just another opportunity for a different type of enslavement tool. Mm. We ensured that we made sure that this was something that we could literally go across the country and find black and brown people that we could incarcerate. And I think some of the numbers say that as much as 70 to 75% of all those that have been incarcerated since the beginning of prohibition against cannabis have all been black and brown people. And it still is the same today. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And just to, to chime in this, you've captured, covered quite a bit. And when we talk about social equity, a lot of the conversation is lost. You know, the social equity flag is raised when it comes to legalization and, and getting folks to support even now at the federal level, safe banking and so forth. Everyone wants to say, hey, we, we need these social equity programs. But when you look at the fundamental structures of these programs, they're not designed to effectuate equitable participation. We know that capital, access to um, facilities, locations, and also the network and resources to ensure that businesses are able to succeed in this highly regulated space, technical assistance being one of those resources, that those are the key elements. And so when you look at any social equity program, if you don't see all four of these components in place to ensure that uh an individual who has been impacted by the war on drugs, right? Because these are the folks who we say deserve to be at the front of the line when it comes to opening up cannabis because cannabis businesses, because they were the ones who held space for cannabis to even exist during the time they, they risked their lives. They, they bucked against the system, if you will, despite what, uh, you know, being it, it being on the controlled substance act and so forth. And they are the ones that allowed for us to continue this industry in the, in the black illicit space, if you will. And now here it is, now that we have tax, taxation in place, they should be at the front of the line. And so the programs that are in place to ensure that they're able to get that should account for all of the needs um, to minimize the barriers to entry. If we know what the barriers are, why are we erecting programs that are not eliminating the barriers? And a lot of the times what we see with the programs is that they actually create additional barriers, they create additional measures um, and uh, responsibility. So, so, did, so now you've worked on this Massachusetts program. Do you think that they are coming around or do you think they're just smoke screening and saying, oh yeah, we really were trying to do this, but they're really not? Well, af after the program was presented to the CCC, we actually got arrest threats from the CCC about four days after the uh, Cannabis Advisory Board presented that program to the CCC. So um, we came with real solutions and we found very quickly that, um, you know, you could get attacked for coming with some solutions, you know, but um, New York is open its arms to the program. But yes, it's I to, to us, it's a very dangerous solution because it's going to really effectuate equity. It's really going to put us in the industry and ownership. So the way the program, the program holds everyone accountable, all stakeholders, the state, the, um, the businesses, the, oper the major operators who had uh, a priority period in Massachusetts to that first mover's advantage to open up and holds them accountable because what you see in Massachusetts and in a lot of these social equity programs, they're building the numbers in terms of participants, but the m numbers we care about are how many are licensed and operational. In Massachusetts, there are levels to licensure. You get the provisional license and then you get your final license and then you are authorized to um, commence operations. However, if you don't have the capital or the, the technical assistance to get from being a social equity participant 
to even securing a location and the host community agreement so that you can get a provisional license, then you're not, you're, we're not going to see the numbers change. So we have, we have certain numbers that show we have over almost, I think about 800 people who are in the social equity program. So 800 participants, but yet when we look at the numbers for ownership and licensure, we drop significantly. Uh, economic empowerment certificate holders hold about 99 licenses. Of those licenses, there's a fraction of those that are actually operational that you can walk into and say, hey, this is a an economic empowerment owned facility, um, licensed facility. I, I think we're, we're roughly around 15 um, facilities, facility, yeah. facility licenses. Out of 99. Um, out of 90, out of 99, but out of 494 that are operational. Wow. That's crazy. Look, Moore mentioned it earlier. He talks about something called the PIES Project. Tell me what the PIES Project is. And the PIES Program is a solution that it, it, we looked at social equity programs across the country. We looked at what they aim, all aim to achieve, which was promote ownership in this space. And we looked at why they were failing. Why is it that despite having these programs in place, we still only see at a national level 2% black and brown ownership in um, business sector in the cannabis industry. And then we look at we looked at certain programs like Oakland, which when they first came out with their equity program, very promising because they paired the uh, license, the existing operators or the well-capitalized operators with equity participants, but yet we still weren't seeing operational businesses. And we looked at where were the weaknesses, where were, where were the gaps, and we identified consistently what you would see in these social equity programs is they may have one or two elements in place. They may have an incubation program in place to support applicants. They may have a, a avenue for them to get a license, but there wasn't anything structured to ensure that everyone is able to um, su successfully not only secure a license, but open up and become operational. So PIES does, um, it looks at four things. It accounts for pairing existing well-capitalized operators with an equity participant without creating a joint venture or any type of equity partnership. Each business operates uh, independently of each other, but they are paired. And what that pair does is it holds the account accountability on both parties to ensure that as one progresses, the other one is also able to progress through the incubation style relationship. And so there is technical assistance provided, mentorship, um, there are certain metrics that are also in place with this program. It's a third-party program designed by equity folks for equity folks held accountable by equity participants. So um, that piece is important because a lot of the times people who are designing the programs aren't fully cognizant of the needs and the key um, elements that need to be in place for an operator to be successful. And so we, we miss out on ensuring that everything that an equity operator needs is in place and then ensuring that the stakeholders are held accountable and incentivized to support equity participants. You know, I mean, but now when we look at this industry as a whole, I mean, I think there are so many things that this industry has failed to do in the last couple of years that really could have actually moved this, this thing forward. I mean, you take a look back, it was two months ago, you know, the president of the United States sat at a press conference and claimed that he was going to try to, you know, change some of the draconian laws and move forward with more speed, the rescheduling of cannabis. And have you heard anything since that? No. 
It's going to be about the election. <laughs> yeah. And 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 people are going to say, well, we we go into an election season. Well, we went to an election season where five states had cannabis on the ballot. So why were there any discussions whatsoever? And I think part of the problem is the fact that this industry spends too much time fighting with each other, trying to get a little piece of the, you know, that old bunker crab syndrome, you know, where they're trying to get the little head for themselves and aren't thinking enough about the entire industry. You know, the rising tide lifts all boats. So if we all sat down together and started working together a little bit more than we are, I think that we'd see some greater success from a national level for, from a one. I mean, um, can I chime in there? Yeah, sure. You're absolutely right. With and the Pies program does do that. I think the so I I, I covered the P and the I in it. The E is Excel, and the S is seed funding. And as you said, in terms of um, the rising tide, we all rise together. The the Pies program fosters this idea of collaboration and working together. So it's not just the big guys against the little guys, but it's the big guys and the little guys working together to create an industry where everybody, because there's enough for all of us to succeed. And, and to thrive in this industry. There's so much more than enough for all of us. We're, 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 bar we're barely scratching the surface when it comes to cannabis, you know, even in comparison to what cannabis was like back in the later, late 1600s, early 1700s. We haven't even begun to, you know, I, I often liken uh, this entire industry to the Wright brothers pushing that wooden plane down a hill. We ain't seen jets yet. You haven't even seen helicopters yet. Let's, let's tell the truth about it. So, I mean, at the, at the, at what we really need to be doing is doing more work together. And I like the fact that the way your project ties successful businesses to startup businesses, in a sense, to help them all work together and force them to work together. That's what we're going to need to do, because once we start working together, then we're going to start finding out that this industry is never going to grow until we start paying attention to the consumer. We spend so we spend so much time doing the B2B work that we forget the fact that somebody's got to walk in and buy. And that's the consumer. And we don't spend enough time educating the consumer. You know, there are people out there right now that don't even understand that they have an endocannabinoid system. There are people out there who don't even understand that that there are, are probably well over 250 cannabinoids, all of which have some sort of value. They don't even understand what terpenes are. They don't, you know, it's it 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 drives me nuts where. You know, I think we spend so much time, again, focused on B2B, where we should be focusing on B2C. So what do you think about the fact that we can't seem to get the attention of the masses when it comes to moving this initiative forward? I mean, when you look at other countries from Israel to other places in the world, senior citizens in Israel understand that cannabis is like a geriatric drug. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We're not Absolutely. even discussing that here. Absolutely. Cannabinoid deficiency is real. Cannabinoid deficiency is a real thing. One of the things that is one of the things that's different um, also is the stigma that has to we have to overcome and that comes through education and empowering in our communities. And one of the other piece that I like to highlight when I, I did my own SWOT analysis, if you will, of the PIES program is the opportunity it creates to really promote education in the space beyond the entrepreneur, beyond the business, but also engaging the community, engaging those who have been left out. I often hear from other cannabis business owners, well, you know, the state law doesn't allow us to market. I'm not talking about marketing. I'm talking about educating. It's our responsibility. This, this industry 
collected $25 billion in 2021. $25 billion in the legal market and probably another $50 billion in the black, gray, you know. <laughs> listen, listen. Yeah. So, I mean, if that's like $75 billion, dude, we are tapping on the door of all total alcohol sales in the country. We sold more, more cannabis than we sold milk in 2021. We sold more cannabis than we sold in all energy drinks. I don't know if you knew that or not, but energy, energy drinks only sold $22.5 billion worth of product in 2021. Cannabis sold $25 billion plus. So... You know, I mean, it's clear that the public has made a statement. They are, they agree that they want cannabis. But if we started really educating them and spending some of that money, and I know that our taxes are so high, and I know that the overhead is so high, but you know what? At some point in time, you're going to have to break yourself and say, okay, I, I, you know what? Let's start educating and getting the, the line longer outside the dispensary store. I agree. I, I definitely agree. And that's one of the biggest things. Um, we took a moral stance against cannabis and to have this war, to wage a war, they usually take, they put God in, in front of the war and they took a moral stance. Um, so you have to really educate the public as to what happened and they have to defrag that, 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 uh, that trauma that a lot, all of us um, physically went through, some mentally and a lot of us spiritually also still suffer from the yes. cannabis trauma. And Absolutely. a lot of the times... When we look at uh, the policies that are coming out, there is this conversation about reinvestment into the communities. And I think there needs to be a greater push that in the in that there is not just educating on how to get a job, but educating on the therapeutic and the medicinal benefits. Educating on why cannabis? Why? Why should I use cannabis over Tylenol? Why should I use cannabis over a beer? Why should I use cannabis over what? Why? And, and, you know, I, I, I will tell you that the majority of times if you talk to the masses, you, you walk down the street, stop some 55-year-old person and say, let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about using cannabis? They say, I don't. They're going to give you all these reasons why they think they shouldn't. And you need to be ready to give them, not you, but we need to, be, as an industry, give them all the reasons why they should. And we also need to be tapping into a lot of the medical professionals because when we talk about the health benefits, people look they're looking to their doctor to be the uh, the one to answer the questions. And when you look at studies with oncologists who are dealing, you probably can speak to this better than I can, but who are dealing with patients, you know, over 40% of them said that they're not even comfortable um, recommending cannabis because they don't know about the benefits of it. They, they haven't done the research. Which to me is ignorant because they have a moral obligation to do continued medical education and they don't do it. There are more published, peer-reviewed published documents on cannabis in the last 10 years than any other drug on the planet. 35,000 peer-reviewed published documents in the last 10 years, 3,500 of them in the last year alone that are all for any doctor to be able to read. So for them to say, well, I don't, I, I just don't have enough information. Stop. Tell them to do your damn job. Your job as a doctor to step up to the plate and make sure you are up to date with all of the most current information when it comes to medicine. And now we do know everything from cancer to you name the malady, cannabis has something to do with it or could impact it in some way. Yeah. One of 
One of the things that's really exciting is, you know, when I get to speak with mothers who are dealing, even through the process of, of pregnancy, a lot of the times they're like, oh, well, they say you can't consume it because of the baby. And just directing them towards research that is out there that shows otherwise, especially um, if you're if you're smoking cannabis, it actually can help you uh, with the nausea, that uh, the morning sickness and so forth. And so- uh, If you and, eat it, I mean, look, the, baby, the baby has the same endocannabinoid system that the mother has. Exactly. And the phytocannabinoids will actually compensate for the deficiencies in the endocannabinoids that the body has. So I, I think they're, you're absolutely right because a lot of folks look at, at me crazy when I say, hey, that's all I used. And, yeah. uh, and, and to realize that with cannabis, there are so many other parts of your body that are being healed that you may not even realize needed that, needed that uh, the cannabinoids that the plant is delivering to you. Absolutely. And now, as your brand grows, are you thinking about going and venturing into other states? Oh, absolutely. We are already um, in New York. Um, we actually I applied for the card license. So we'll be looking to see if that's I qualify for that, um, that equity program. My goal is to have a cannabis business in every state I was arrested for cannabis in. You know, um, and I'm, I'm really big on the advocacy because I was privileged. And there's still people in jail right now. And um, it's a travesty. It's, it, it's, it's horrific um, that the arrest rates um, still continue in, in, in fully legal states. If people wanted to get more information about your brand, about your company, where would they go? Shakti Green Lit. Uh, my wife is better at that than my, me. Uh, but yeah, Shakti Green Lit, IG, FB, uh, Twitter. Okay. Shakti so Green Lit is spelled... S-H-A-K-T-I-G-R-E-E-N-L-I-T. And we are available on all platforms from YouTube to, to Twitter, to Facebook, to Instagram. Also, just a standard Gmail email account. You can reach us um, on, on our website as well, ShaktiGreenlit.com. Great. Now, you know, when you look at the industry, what would you like to see change, let's say, in the next year, next two years, next five years? Ownership. Um, that's why that's why we created this this program. We wanted to challenge all of the states that said equity wasn't working. We wanted to challenge them with a real program. So I would love to see ownership um, uh, be reflective of the people who were persecuted uh, for cannabis. And how about you? Cynthia? In, addi in addition to that, I'd I would love to see the conversation about equity expand through all areas. And when we talk about ownership, not pigeonholing um, participants to certain license types, but across the board from, from uh, cultivators to operators, to educators, to leaders, to decision makers. I would like to see that level of representation uh, across the board. Absolutely. And let me, let me ask you one more. What, what's been the most rewarding thing about being involved in the cannabis industry for you? Both of you. <laughs> Man, this is this is redemption for me, man. I've been a lifetime pothead, been around cannabis, um, even as a means to um, figure out how I was going to uh, feed my family, you know, um, in a completely illegal space. Uh, so, yeah, the biggest retribution is, is, is for me is just being in this space, um, things being legal, legal pot, you know. Gotcha. And how about you, Cynthia? What's been, been the most rewarding thing about working in this space? Rewarding thing about working in cannabis has been the the ability for me to bring my passion for for justice 
and um, develop something that's concrete and see a vision where we will actually be able to effectuate equity. If I could say my background, as you shared um, in education, so in education, we're dealing with systemic issues steeped in racism, steeped in white supremacy, steeped in the systems that have been in place. And we see that mirrored. And so to have this opportunity as the, uh, the, the legal side is still nascent and to potentially have that impact and shift the direction so that we can see something equitable that has generational impact. That's really exciting so that this work that we've done, the work that we're putting in now, the um, I guess that's been a reward and a hope at the same time. Gotcha, for sure. Well, look, I can't thank you guys enough. I'm glad next time when I come up to the, the mass area, I'm going to try to reach out and see if we can hook up for something, okay? Yeah, absolutely. Even, even, even as a matter of just sharing a little bit of uh <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, we met. We absolutely got to put some samples in your hand and put a couple in the air. I would love that. Absolutely. Yeah, that absolutely. I, I'd love for you to try mine too. We'll yeah, yeah, there. yeah. All right. Okay. Well, you guys stay well. Please be well, stay well. And thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today. Thank you, Montel. Yes, sir. Thank, thank you. you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. And make sure you stay tuned to the next Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.